to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI Cast. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another MRI cast. This is Bill Faulkner, and with me is... Hi, I'm Kristen Harrington. Of course you are. We're glad <laughs> glad you're here, and we're glad other people are, are, have tuned in and are, are subscribing. Uh, with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Chris Comstock. Hello, Dr. Chris Comstock. Hi, how y'all doing? <laughs> Oh, we're doing we're doing well. Thank you. Uh, we're happy to have Chris with us. This this is going to be a very uh, informative MRI cast, uh, focusing on breast MRI and contrast agents. And so, uh, first, before we get started, uh, let's ask Dr. Comstock if he wouldn't mind just tell us a little bit about yourself, so people know who you are, where you're from, where you're okay. where you are now. How long? How long do we have? Should I start when I was a uh, young boy in California, or uh, more recent? Oh, I don't know. Let's let's do the more recent part. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm a, a radiologist, obviously, and I um, am trained in breast imaging. I did a fellowship at the University of Chicago in breast imaging, and I actually chose that fellowship because uh, the folks there at the University of Chicago were uh, kind of the pioneers of uh, mammography CAD systems, and then. Uh, from then, I moved on to Northwestern, where they were getting digital mammography, and um, <clears throat> and then after that, I, I I went out to California, Long Beach Memorial. I worked with uh, Bill Bradley, just a, a great a, a giant in the field and a great mentor, and that was Absolutely. the beginning of uh, you know breast MRI. You know, I wanted I knew breast MRI was on the horizon, so I I worked with Bill and then uh, followed him down to UCSD in San Diego and became the uh, section chief of breast imaging and. You know, really, uh, the goal was to ramp up their breast MRI program and do breast MRI biopsies. So that was in the early 2000s. And since then, I've worked my way back to uh, uh, to New York. Now I'm at Sloan Kettering. I've been there for uh, th- about 13 years now. And uh, pretty much, you know, uh, we're one of the, the premier sites. And, uh, you know, after the work of Liz Morris and others, um, a kind of a premier site in breast MRI. Absolutely. I've been mentioning some of those names. It's uh Brings back a lot of good memories. I have good, uh, good memories of working with uh, with Bill Bradley and a lot of the early days of the ISMRM SMRT. Uh, Bill Bill Bradley was a great great MRI great MRI radiologist. He he was not good for your health, but he was a good <laughs> yeah <laughs> good radiologist. Um, Liz Morris as well. Great uh, great group of people. So. Um, what I want to start with, and I'm going to get Kristen to start this off, is a little bit of a discussion on the history of breast MRI from the early, early days. So we're not talking about uh, back when things were getting rolling when Chris was out there in California, but, you know, very early on after the introduction of gadolinium, the idea, the thought of breast MRI came up. So Kristen, tell us a little bit about uh, 
what you found out about that. Well, yeah, you know, um, I'm from Emory and um, we started doing breast. um, Well, I guess we had been when um, I was a student there. Um, But when I've gone back and done research, and that was in the early 90s, when I've gone back and done research about, you know, how did all this happen? Um, So in 1986, there was a paper that came out and it was about, um, you know, looking at other modalities, mammography, um, ultrasound, and then looking at MR as far as breast imaging. And essentially, um, with the use of gadolinium, obviously, and it literally just said that it's possible, but it needed technical improvements, and then it needed more clinical um, experience. And so basically, it was just like, it's possible. And then shortly thereafter, a few years later, um, I think it was about 91, um, there was another paper, it was a really small study um, that was done. And the um, what it essentially said was, yeah, it's 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 possible, it's it's there, but it's way way too expensive, and that you're going to get the same sensitivity specificity. You know, at that current time in '91, we didn't have all these technical advancements, we didn't have the ability to do these dynamics. But it said, you know, it's really something that's just not there yet. It's not where it needs to be. It's it's possible, but using mammography um, supplemented with ultrasound, um, that's going to be more than enough at that time. And and if you just think about the evolution, and then when I was um, doing research on it um, at very, very early days, I'll just kind of lead into this. Um, We only had linear coils. We had this circular coil and we would have to build the patients up on pillows. And um, we would then just have them lay prone and we could only do one breast at a time. I mean, this is before you had multi-channel coils and um, we couldn't get a dynamic in less than a a minute and a half. And it's just the truth. We didn't even have a power injector. I mean, that's that's how old I am. And um, so, you know, we were trying to do all of this research on it, but we just didn't have the um, technology that we do. And so, you know, just as you fast forward, you know, field strength increase, you know, the ability to get these dynamics, all of these things started started changing and evolving. And so I, I know that you both have had experience with the evolution of the different things with the temporal resolution, with the spatial resolution, with the better fat saturation. So, you know, what, what's your experience as far as how you've seen it evolve? Well, yeah, Chris, I was going to ask you, like when when you remember in the very early days of MR, you know, past the point now where, yeah, you can give gadolinium and yes, you know, stuff will enhance. And part of the problem, if I remember correctly, in the very early days of breast MRI, when people were starting to write about it and talk about it, it basically everything, all cancers would enhance, but everything that enhanced was not a cancer. And uh, again, to Kristen's point, there was a lot of hardware uh, difficulties. Coils was one of the first things that I remember, um, you know, and then then techniques. Chris, what's your uh, memorance on those days? Yeah, it's interesting. It, you know, it's funny. MRI, MRI for breast is kind of a similar history to mammography when, you know, back in the, you know, the early 50s, 
people noticed they, they could see lesions on a chest X-ray in the breast, right? And, you know, Bob, Bob Egan took that and it needed a lot of refinement and, you know, it evolved into mammographic screening today. I think the similar thing happened with with uh, breast MRI was that, you know, breast cancers are, were noted on other, you know, body applications of, of uh, MRI and it evolved, you know, some of the early work with Warner Kaiser and, and others looking at, okay, now we see these lesions, um, you know, with improvements with the resolution, you can, uh, you know, then, then it became the whole um, coming up with criteria on, you know, morphology and margins and internal enhancement in, in helping to uh, Im improve specificity and distinguish benign from malignant. So, you know, those were the early days. And, and if you think about the BIRADS lexicon, you know, the, the whole concept of foci of enhancement rather than calling them small masses, you know, stemmed from the early days where resolution was, you know, maybe 256 by 256 in-plane matrix. And you really couldn't classify, you didn't have the resolution to classify these small dots of enhancement. So they had that, you know, the, the term foci to describe those or, or, or lesions that couldn't otherwise be uh, uh, classified. And I think, you know, we're going to see the lex the BIRADS lexicon do away now that we have, you know, much higher spatial resolution and temporal resolution uh, and better detail that I think, you know, we don't really need that classification anymore. It's either you know, just normal background prep, you know, enhancement or it's it's a small mass. So, you know, we've seen the evolution over, you know, 25 plus years with breast MRI and uh, we'll talk later, but, you know, now we've, we've kind of moved on to breast MRI 2.0 with uh, diffusion weighted imaging ultra fast and now abbreviated MR so I really think we're we're uh, we've advanced a long ways uh, in terms of its applications for breast I remember speaking of diffusion weighted imaging I didn't really have that in my notes but since you brought that up because I remember seeing some uh, several uh, papers and stuff on diffusion um, and I don't know that I've ever seen it. I mean, where where does that stand right now? It looked like it was going to be really promising, and it held, seemed to work really well, especially in cases where, for example, a patient has a cancer, and then this to me was was the most uh, compelling thing I saw on it. So, a patient has cancer, and then they start her own chemotherapy, and normally with the chemotherapy, if I if I remember correctly, you uh, you have to wait several rounds of chemo treatment and then try to determine if it's in right. fact working. If it's not working, then you want to you know try another drug. But with diffusion, uh, at least the one or two papers I saw on it, it, you could tell if it's working rather quickly because the um, the diffusion would change. Uh, very soon, if if in fact it was if it in fact work it was working, right. it would change very soon after the initial administration of uh, chemotherapy. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, there, I mean, there's there have been several. You know, this that we're talking about using MR and and different aspects on MR as what we'd call a surrogate marker. And um, you know, one diffusion is one thing. Change in kinetics, uh, you know, tumor volume, etc. Um, the problem with diffusion, and and even people have been, you know. Uh, single institutions and, and various programs have been, you know, evaluating diffusion-weighted imaging as a standalone, you know, screening method. But, you know, the problem has been the software is constantly changing. You know, each center is using a different software or vendor package. And so there really isn't a lot of great data on um, 
you know, it's a it's a long ways off. I'd say 10, 15 years where really it might find a role as as a standalone for screening, but it, it's never going to have the sensitivity that MR with contrast, you know, it may be an option uh, in between somewhere between ultrasound and, and contrast MR, but it's not going to have the sensitivity. But yeah, but other applications, improving specificity, you know, lesions that have, uh, you know, higher free water motion, um, uh, tend to be benign versus restricted uh, lesions with res restricted diffusion tend to be more cellular and uh, and that's tends tend to you know suggest it more likely to be cancer so there's several applications and as you mentioned looking at response to therapy uh, is another application of diffusion but it's it's still um, you know it's still co not quite standardized and choice of B values and technique is still still quite variable whereas you know with contrast, MR for screening. I remember my days early on with with Bill Bradley at UC San Diego, and there were five or six centers who were offering, you know, who were performing breast MRI for breast cancer screening, and uh, they were all over the map. There were centers doing coronal <laughs> scanning and and on a 0.7 open MR systems, and so I think what helped to standardize breast MRI was the uh, ACR breast MRI accreditation program that that put some parameters in terms of quality and resolution and timing. So I think we've seen over, you know, 15 years now, we've seen uh, breast MRI become a bit more standardized uh, contrast MRI. And I think that's really helped the quality and, and uh, the, um, uh, the quality for, you know, interpretation and, and for patients. So Dr. Um, Comstock, well, I'm sure Bill's got a little something to throw in there, but I just, just since we're talking about it, um, just to give people an idea out there, I've always heard that something more like 500 would be better than 2,500 as far as a B value, as far as the sensitivity. Um, what do you find to be what you would recommend to everyone out there? Well, you know, it, it it depends, you know, it depends a bit on uh, what your application is and software. And, and uh, there's a lot of work that's been done. There was an ECOG Akron trial by uh, Savannah Partridge um, looking at diffusion for, for increase in specificity. And uh, they published their results looking at different B values, you know, the optimal B values. And I, I, I can't remember off, off the top of my head what, what the exact values were. But, you know, it's a little bit depending on the different on the applications and also depending on the uh, um, system that you're using in the software. Well, one of the things one of the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, as we get ready to bring it into kind of modern day here, um, I remember when uh, – you know, coil options were uh, were few and far between, but then that kind of got standardized. And so now everybody's got, you know, if you're doing breast, you've got a good breast coil. Multi-channel coil yeah. Uh, yeah. is certainly, was certainly a big uh, benefit, not only in SNR, but now also for the use of parallel imaging acquisition so you can shorten the data acquisition time. Right. And now with the applications of AI and, and deep learning, we see different new, new iterations of software that are even more more efficient and, uh, and uh, allow faster scanning times. Yeah. Well, since you're talking about AI, why don't you give us, I, I've read some things, you know, here and there about AI and the applications as far as it relates to, to breast. Um, tell us what you're doing with that up at Sloan Kettering. Well, there's, you know, there's, there's different applications and, and, they're they're kind of two two different uh, categories, I would say. One, you know, one is 
AI to improve efficiency and uh, and speed of of scanning. And so that's on the vendor side, where there you know different software using deep learning, uh, where where it can can uh, you know improve um, the scan and uh, shorten the times. But then there's also AI for interpretation, and that's um, obviously you know breast MRI has has uh, you know all sorts of data that, that humans just really can't process, you know, if you, you, you know, with all the data and the pixels and the images, the kinetics, you know, and then you add T2 and diffusion and ultrafast and you have all this information, which, you know, I think we're really not taking advantage of. And so that's the whole, that's another, another application with AI is, is can we see patterns, um, not only for, you know, improving specificity of, you know, when, when there's a, le- a lesion using that, but also um, response to therapy and uh, radiomics where, you know, there's all this information and we know, you know, just visually when we have a patient who has a pre-op MR and we see there's, there's quite a variation in cancer patterns. You have the solitary, you know, mass, you have the, the spiculated and, you, you know, diffuse, you know, cancer that's peppered through the breast. And, you know, those, those are clearly different biologies. And I, th- I think really one, one application that is promising is, you know, in the past we've, we've used breast MRI, contrast MRI to kind of predict the, the uh, genomics, the, the histo- histology and genetic, genetic profiling of a lesion, but that's not really the, you know, patients are going to get a biopsy and you're, you know, you're going to still do the, the histology and the, uh, and the, uh, phenotyping and, um, genetic profiling of lesions. It's so it's not really that important. I think to be able to predict that, I think what's more important is to combine all those features and that data along with, so the imaging data, along with the radio, uh, the genomic data to better to together to be synergistic and to, to better predict if if you had just one versus the other, so I think the combination is really going to be a powerful tool in planning uh, the appropriate therapy. I mean, it's going to be the point where the information is there that you don't really have to scan after you know you know you'll have clinical follow up, but you don't really have to do those post post therapy uh, as you mentioned um, MR scans to see if there's response. I mean, there we'll probably be able to determine what the appropriate therapy is right up front based on all that information. So I think there's a lot of exciting applications for AI. Um, it's just a matter of time to, to get those into practice. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I was, that's what I was wondering about because, you know, what you're describing sounds a lot like um, what I've heard people, uh, obviously not to this many of uh, types of technologies, but what I've heard, you know, multi-parametric MRI, where you right. get all these parameters, you get all, right. you get all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's, so AI helps you sort that out. Right. And that's, uh, you know, in my group is uh, Katja Pinker, who's a, a fantastic breast MR radiologist. And she's, she's done a lot of work on the, the whole concept of, par, you know, uh, parametric uh, breast MRI and imaging. And you're exactly right. There's, there's a lot of information that, that, we have in different kind of channels there that we could really, uh, I think we're, we're underutilizing that information just because there's so much. Well, would you, I have one other question for you. Now we're going to, then we'll change, change tracks here a little bit. So in the, going back a few years, uh, and I think I know the answer to this, but I just wanted to get your thought on it and see if, see if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Originally, or 
not originally, but not too long ago, once we started getting uh, better coil technology and and uh, were working on the techniques for acquiring the data, there were really two camps. There's uh, There was a camp, and, and uh, Steve Harms was uh, big into this camp, and that's about where you inject contrast and you look at the morphology. You just you want to see what it looks like. Um, as high a detail as you can get um, and and look and see right. what the lesion, right. how it looks, how it appears. And then the other camp was the kinetics camp where you inject contrast and you watch it over time. The problem early on with the techniques was kinetics was a little rough because you could do rapid acquisition, but you couldn't get quite the spatial resolution right. that you yeah, could get, was, right? Yeah, you had to decide, you know, it was a trade-off, you know, you, you couldn't have the best of both worlds. And I think with uh, technology improvements today, and this yeah. is on the scanner side of things, um, I think everybody is now settled. I mean, there was also a debate on, well, you know, General Electric, GE had, had, had a technique where you could do basically simultaneous sagittal images and you use a smaller field of view. And that was kind of, I think, the thing people were pushing for is if you could use a smaller field of view, improve the spatial resolution for these dynamic sequences. That was one way to do it, uh, where everybody else was bilateral uh, axials. Um, And I think that's kind of settled down now where the technique has improved. So now everybody's just doing bilateral axials, correct? Yeah, I think, you know, the the technology's improved to the point with where we we can achieve both a a balance of, you know, high, very high, um, I think generally it's the highest resolution and then kind of moderate, you know, moderate temporal, temporal resolution. So I think we, we've achieved a, you know, we're capable of getting, you know, both, both types of information in a, in a pretty high quality scan now versus, you know, back in the day when the, the scanning technology was much slower, the centers would have to do one breast at a time to, in order to yeah. <laughs> achieve that. So we know that we, you know, again, increase the field strength, you know, that better capabilities with as far as the multi-channel um, with all the things that that has to offer. And then if you look at all the different things that we're able to achieve now, we also have to think about the technology of the different contrast agents and how they've evolved as well. So the papers that I were talking about um, was talking about from like 1986, 1991, you know, that era, they were just based upon Magnavis, which, you know, was pretty much the agent that was that was in all those papers back then. Um, but if you think right. about how that has evolved over time, that's really, really, really had a huge impact in how we approach and how we carry out the breast imaging. Would you guys agree? Yeah, there's been a big change in kind of what's available and compared to, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it's really kind of the landscape has changed because of various factors. Well, one of the big one of the biggest factors uh, was the addition of uh, introduction of uh, the first significantly higher relaxivity agent. Um, people had always known if you gave you know if you give more you see more, but you know given higher dose uh, you know is not something that didn't last very long. And then uh, Multihans came on the scene as the first uh, clinically significant high relaxivity agent. And there were numerous studies that um, 
numerous studies that showed uh, that breast MR greatly benefited by the uh, use of a high relaxivity contrast agent. And Multihance's relaxivity is roughly two times higher than the you know the other agents. Uh, Christiana Cool was one of the uh, uh, I think one of the authors of some of these papers, and once higher relaxivity started gaining ground, uh, then is, is uh, Chris, is that when, um, you know, screening started to get more traction? Right. I, I think um, clearly people recognize that, the, you know, the higher relaxivity agents obviously are going to make lesions brighter and, any, you know, any any type of modality that, you know, Im improves conspicuity of a lesion is going to translate to not only improve sensitivity, but also improve specificity. And I, and I think that that's clearly what, you know, why we've chosen in the past for, for breast MRI, for breast cancer screening is, is the highest relax relaxivity is going to help us, you know, have the highest possible sensitivity and specificity. So that's, that's always been the, 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 the approach. But, you know, the, cho the choices obviously have changed. And now with uh, the various, you know, concerns over gadolinium deposition and, you know, people have kind of have, have migrated over to the out of out of caution, even though we don't really know the if there are any real harms from the this whole observation of the, um, you know, the brainstem deposition. Uh, a lot of centers have out of caution, you know, trans uh, uh, switched over to, to uh, using the macrocyclics. Uh, but in the past, that's always meant, you know, you're, you're choosing a, traditionally they've been, have less relaxivity. And so, you know, we don't know the exact, uh, you know, amount of decrease in sensitivity, but clearly it, it, it's, it's not as preferable as, as using a, a higher relaxivity agent in the past. That was always. Well, and especially, especially if you had used a high relaxivity agent in previous exams, then all of a sudden the patient's coming back right. for follow-up. Right. Um, it's probably easier to go the other way, start with low and then change to high than it is going yeah, back the other way. You know, and we've, we've gone through at Sloan Kettering various different agents and, and, you know, each time when you have a patient you're following, it does affect your ability to compare because, you know, is, is it a little, is the lesion you're following a little bigger because the, the relaxivity of the new agent. So it, it, it adds challenges when you, you switch to different, you know, relaxivity agents over time. But, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, that's, it's less and that's less what you have to do. And, yeah. and that's what you have to do in radiology anyway. Right. right. I mean, you get, you get new coils. So now you're comparing something from, right. you know, the old coil and wow, right. or you're on a three T system now right. as opposed to a one five. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of goes along with it, but you know, that's, that's certainly something to look at. And I want to mention, uh, for the people listening, uh, regarding, uh, gadolinium deposition, Chris made a really good point. Um, we've actually known since the first days of gadolinium that when you give a certain amount of gadolinium, you don't get it all back out. I mean, that's been known literally since day one. Um, what that meant, nobody really knew. And uh, there have been several papers that showed that the linear non-ionic agents uh, left behind or had a lot more what's called transmetallation where endogenous metals in the body would would transmetallate with the uh, with the ligand or the gadolinium, and so um, 
this again has been has been proven in numerous papers. Uh, but again, we all said, you know, hey, just don't know, you know, what that means. And then here was the big freight train of NSF, and then that got everybody's attention, and pretty much eliminated the very low stability agents, for the most part. And then, uh, then this shock about gadolinium showing up in uh, in brain tissue, where I was always taught gadolinium doesn't cross an intact blood brain barrier, but here yet here it is um the other interesting thing about the brain deposition is of all the and there are numerous papers that bear this out of all the areas in the body where you have gadolinium deposition and there's quite a few it's number one it's not a lot of gadolinium being deposited very small amounts and the actual least amount deposited anywhere is in the brain and there have been numerous studies um from the group out of Mayo, Dr. Uh, Dr. McDonald uh, and his group who have looked at autopsy specimens with this very closely. And in no human or animal studies to date has any neuronal or any type of, of uh, cellular damage been seen. And so this concern has, has waned a little bit, um, but it's still there. I think it was there enough uh, Chris, don't you think to plant that seed in somebody's mind? And now when you look at a, a, a patient population that's going to get repeat exams, you, it's kind of hard to get rid of that taste once it's been in your right. mouth. Yeah, it's 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 kind of an unknown. As you mentioned, There's there, they haven't noted any cytotoxic effects or cell damage in the deposition. So it's similar, you know, to deposition of other things like iron deposits in the brain. So, um, you know, I think there have been what is it on the order of 300 or 400 million doses in the in the world and you know we don't oh, yeah. we don't have the 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 day of the what is it the dawn of the dead walking zombie <laughs> we so, don't <laughs> you know you know i think you know out of caution and and with this observation and and you know but there've been studies looking at cognitive abilities and parkinson's mm-hmm. relations and that none of that has panned out so you know it's just an observation but as you mentioned it's kind of been planted as a as a little bit of an unknown and so out of caution you know people wanted to do what they can to minimize any potential risks um you know i i'd heard it said i think it was dr howard raleigh uh, on one of our podcasts in the past said uh you know that the gadolinium deposition was uh in the early days of, of MR, uh, you would see it. You'd see, you know, high signal, you know, in the dentate nucleus and stuff. And it was uh, an incidental finding. Right. And in the early days, you didn't do anything about it. It's an incidental finding. It didn't mean anything. And he said, to this day, it still is, in fact, an incidental finding. Right. Um, there's no uh, no Clinical types of manifestations. Sim- yeah. 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 Nothing, nothing. So, but again, um, but it, and, you know, another thing, and and you 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 know, uh, I'm sh- you know, I I think in the past, you know, um, you know, in other countries too, and we've seen uh, the FDA and ACR researching it, but it's it's obviously changed the market uh, of what's available and, and different. You know, it's different in Europe than in the United States. Yes, it it yeah. definitely is. Um, so you know, with that in mind, um. What we're going to talk about next is uh, a little bit about the new agent that has been on the market now for several uh, several months, uh, the uh, 
the chemical name for it is gadopiclinol. Uh, Bracco's uh, marketing of it, marketing as a viewway. Um, and it's a macrocyclic agent that has uh, two big components to it or two big uh I guess, uh, characteristics that make it very attractive. Number one, it's, um, it's macrocyclic and its stability is five times that of the nearest, uh, agent, which is Dotorem. And the gadopiclinol review A is five times greater. And what I found interesting about that is that within the last three weeks, uh, the gadopiclinol agents have been added to the ACR's group two agents, and they have just and they were just released, um, you know, back late last year, and and they're not available in Europe. Uh, this this uh, this was the first time that a that a gadolinium agent had been released in the U.S. before Europe. And for those that don't know it, I think there's three different classifications. So you've got Group One, Group Two, and Group Three, according to the ACR manual on contrast media. And Group Two agents are ones that um, have little, if any, unconfounded cases of NSF associated with them. And so to be put into that category also means something as far as, you know, looking for the EGFR as well and um, having to do a screening for that um, for, you know, patients that would be at a higher risk. And so being that new to the market and, and being immediately placed into that category, you know, EVIS, for example, is in, um, you know, it's a group three agent. And it's just because, you know, it said that there's not enough data out there yet. We've got this newer agent, you know, gadapiclinol out there, the viewway, and, you know, it's already placed into the, the group two agents. Um, and then just for everyone that doesn't know, group one is the, the least stable, the most associated NSF cases that are out there. Um, so, you know, what do you, why do you think that happened? Well, I think it happened because the data is, is compelling. The stability measurements on it are just, like I said, five right. times the stability. Right. It is much and, more attractive. Yeah. It's so attractive, Bill, remember? Yeah. And the, and the physical properties, yeah. Oh, yeah. So back to the physical properties that we were talking about. So, yes, it's, mac it's macrocyclic, extremely highly stable. And it also has extremely high relaxivity. The unique characteristic of it relative to other agents, all other agents have a single chemical crevice, let's say, for lack of a better word, that incorporates a single water molecule. So uh, one, one water molecule per uh, molecule of gadolinium, which is why if you give more of our, give a higher dose, you see more because you involve more water. Well, the gadopiclinol molecule inherently involves more water because it will incorporate two water molecules in its inner sphere. So that's probably accounts for about 60% or so of its relaxivity. But then the other thing, it has these three hydrophilic arms, these huge arms that hang off of it that, uh, basically interact with more water. I mean, the yeah. only way I can think of it is it spins around, it slaps more water molecules yeah. and incorporates more water in the outer sphere. So it's just got a lot more water going right. for it. It's, it's got a, a higher hydration state. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that as I was been reading about is like the, the speed with which that water molecule is replaced and that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, it's a little bit uh, high on that as well. So, 
at any rate, this this is showing really big promise. And the other thing about it um, is that the dose, the standard dose of this agent is 0.05 millimole per kilogram, which is half of the standard dose of the standard agents. So uh, whereas somebody my size would get 20 mLs of, say, Prohance, uh, for the standard dose, 0.1 millimol per kilogram. Uh, if you were dosing me at the standard dose of VUA of 0.05, you're going to be giving me 10 mLs, and I'm getting less gadolinium, literally getting less gadolinium, and I'm getting a more pronounced effect at the same time. And it's macrocyclic. It checks all the boxes. Right, I think. right. I, I think it's really an exciting uh, option now for as we see breast MRI, and we can talk about this whole abbreviated breast MRI for yeah. breast cancer screening, but, um, you know, the, the choice in the past had been, okay, I, I want the highest relaxivity. If you want to try to achieve the results of the various papers on sensitivity uh, that used uh, linear agents, you know, for the highest relaxivity and highest sensitivity, you're sacrificing, you know, unfortunately you're getting, um, you know, more instability and more dis, you know, deposition and disassociation of, of gadolinium. And it's always been kind of the, the trade-off. And and now, uh, you know, over the last five, six years or so, centers have, have switched over to macrocyclics for breast MR uh, just out of caution of reducing, you know, as, as much as possible deposition by using more stable, you know, the macrocyclics in general have been more stable. So, You've that, but then you've sacrificed some of your sensitivity. So I think it's very exciting to have an agent that really fits the bill for for breast cancer screening, and that you can have high relaxivity. So keep up, you know, your high sensitivity and vis, you know, visualization and characterization of lesions. But at the same time, you can cut the dose in half and have, uh, a, you know, with a with a very stable uh, uh, gadolinium agent. So it, it's it's a perfect. Uh, option if you know particularly for breast MRI screening when you, women are going to start in their you know even you know high risk patients are starting in their you know in their late 20s and then uh, obviously uh, scanning for many years uh, you know average risk patients starting at 40 and it's getting you know 15 20 years of screening um, it, it's a great option for that repeated you know repeated dose where you you want to minimize the amount of gadolinium so I think it's very exciting. I want to, before we move into the, the discussion on screening and, and abbreviated breast protocol, because I want people to really get a lot of information out of that part, I want to kind of, I guess, introduce that concept with a uh, paper that was published in European Radiology um, sometime, I'm looking at, published in 2021, uh, May of 2021. And it was a... Uh, Assessment of patient preferences preferences for properties of gadolinium. These were in uh, potential socioeconomic impact in a screening breast MRI setting. So these were women that were at intermediate or high risk of breast cancer, and they surveyed them. And uh, of the participants, uh, they were asked to choose two hypothetical gadolinium agents, which they would prefer, and they were followed by several attributes. Um, and the rating of the attributes were as follows. The number one attribute that they picked was sensitivity. Um, 
that that was the number one characteristic that they'd like to see. Um, second was severe allergic-like reaction risk. Uh, you know, they wanted a little of that. The third ranked was intracranial gadolinium retention. And the number fourth rank was out-of-pocket expense. Now, if the uh, participants were of lower income, not surprisingly, the out-of-pocket expense was number one, but sensitivity was still number two. And this is where the importance of screening breast mammography and let uh, Chris talk, speak to this, because he's got a lot of experience with it. This is where this becomes very important. And if you're going to make it screening, if you're going to do it screening, you've got to make it quick. You've got to make it uh, affordable. And but you don't want to give up that uh, sensitivity. And so, Chris, talk to us a little bit about this evolution of the abbreviated breast and because you've got a paper on it. Right. Um, right. And, and I'd like you to obviously discuss that as well. Well, you know, it's it's interesting in, in academics, you know, we have certain kind of benchmarks and, and uh, what we can consider appropriate screening tests, right, in terms of having a high sensitivity and, um, and high specificity, but, you know, you know, and how we kind of view various tests. And it's interesting, if you look at mammography and in particularly the combination with whole breast screening ultrasound, uh, it's not a very good test. It's got a very low PPV of, you know, you know, in some publications, Wendy Berg's publications, you know, less than 10% PPV, but women still seek which out, is, which is positive protective value. Yeah, so right, I just want to right. make sure. I know and uh, so, yeah. So out of a hundred biopsies, only, only, you know, less than 10 out of a hundred were, were turned out to be cancer. So, um, but it's interesting that, you know, we, we've never considered that a very good test, uh, but it's amazing how women flock to, uh, you know, before some of the breast density legislation laws that that um, came out in different states mandating the density letter and advising patients they they sh should consider some supplemental screening. At Sloan Kettering, we we did almost zero whole breast screening ultrasounds a day, and now we're up to probably thirty or forty a day. Um, wow! And you know, and there's these private boutique centers where you know women pay eight nine hundred dollars out of pocket for a whole breast screening ultrasound, and it just shows despite, you know, uh, the academic kind of perception of tests, um, you know, it shows, you know, women want to have their breast cancer found, uh, despite, you know, having some false, uh, you know, false positives, et cetera. And, um, you know, when I, you know, I took over for, uh, at first it was Etta Pisano, who was the, the, uh, imaging chair of the Akron organization, then it, and then Connie Lehman, and then it merged with, uh, ECOG, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. And uh, so ECOG Akron, uh, as the co, uh, as the imaging co-chair of the breast committee with Kathy Miller, and now it's Antonio Wolf, um, you know, I set about with a, a kind of a mini retreat to uh, brainstorm on what our, our priorities and in, in future directions of, of imaging and, and uh, answers, you know, what, what, what questions did we want to answer in our clinical trials? And I kind of stacked the deck because I invited Christian Poole and, and Gillian Newstead to the, to the mini retreat. And, and imagine that, guess what came out of the mini retreat was that we wanted to do a, a abbreviated breast MRI trial. And, you know, the reason being is breast MR has always been our most powerful screening tool. Everybody in breast imaging knows that. 
but we've always limited it to just a small, you know, less than a percent of, of women because, uh, because of its cost and, you know, and perceived, you know, low, low, low PPV and, and, and it's time. But so, you know, and Christian has done pioneering work, obviously on abbreviated breast MRI, but, but the concept is we've got our most powerful tool, but we're only using it on, you know, less than, you know, half a percent of women, um, only those high risk, you know, gene carriers or, or greater than 20% lifetime risk. You know, how could we expand the access of this powerful screening tool, you know, contrast, you know, screening MRI to, to more women and, you know, particularly women with dense breast tissue where mammographic sensitivity is lower. How can we expand that? Well, we needed to, to break down the barriers of um, cost and time. And so that's where the whole concept of abbreviated breast MRI. And, and so we, we published our results. We did a, pay, a, a study with about 1,500 uh, patients at about 40 centers. And uh, um, out of that trial on, on the baseline uh, scan, comparing this abbreviated, it was an eight-minute uh, MRI, uh, just consisting of a, a T2 and a pre and a post contrast scan. Um, so, you know, if you can do an MRI in eight minutes, that's you could do about three or four patients compared to a normal uh, MRI. So you could get the, the cost down to a third of a normal, you know, what you're reimbursed for a breast MRI. So that can get it down to the range of a whole breast screening ultrasound. And what we, what we found was, you know, it's a phase two study. And the, and the reason we did, we wanted to do this study is that most of the data on screening abbreviated MRI was, um, you know, people had done a full MR, but then they did reader studies where they stripped out the sequences and they, you know, but it, the patient didn't actually undergo so uh, a, a true ABMR. So we really wanted to do a, um, a phase two, you know, real world uh, evaluation of abbreviated MR. And we found, you know, in, in phase two studies, not only is, is it important to find out the cancer detection rate, but there's a lot of other information that helps patients and referring physicians decide on, you know, uh, when they order the test or when they, uh, they request the test is that, you know, how well is it tolerated? Um, you know, are centers able to perform it? How long does it take? So the, the, uh, 96% of the scans were done under 10 minutes. I think the average was eight minutes, 96% of women were able to tolerate the scan. And, um, uh, so, you know, we confirmed a lot of aspects of, of the performance, but then the big thing was out of the 1500 patients, there were 23 women on that first screening round diagnosed with cancer, uh, compared to, they had just a screening, uh, DBT or, you know, digital breast tomosis, tomosynthesis, which is kind of the considered, I guess, the, the, the standard of care mammographic screening right now. And the, the tomosynthesis found nine out of 23 of the the cancer patients, whereas the MRI found 22 out of 23. So it's a stark, starking improvement in sensitivity. And I, I really think that, um, and now see, now you've got me going on my soapbox here. I could, I could continue okay. for an hour, but, <laughs> uh, you know, over 40,000 women die each year of, uh, breast cancer. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I find it ironic that, you know, out of the, how, how long was the Vietnam war? I don't know, seven, eight years we had yeah. 50,000, you know, soldiers die and we had riots in the streets, but we have almost that number every year dying, women dying from breast cancer, but I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing any riots. So I'm on a, so I'm on a bit of my own, uh, riot here about, you know, what's the quickest way to reduce mortality from, 
you know, in, in the country from breast cancer. And, you know, despite improvements in therapy, really the, the, the easiest thing is to find more cancers, you know, earlier. And clearly, with, you know, with this, with this ABMR, you know, we, we two and a half times the detection rate, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great tool. And now that we've shown it can be done, you know, for low cost and, uh, and, um, a short time and uh, the acceptability is high. I think we're really on to kind of a new paradigm of of screening uh, for patients. Well, let me ask you this: um, yeah. Yes, um, you know, for screening, it's fantastic. But if you look at the data and what's been published, um, do you think that other than maybe um, an initial um, MRI done, you know, at a longer with with more sequences to show more information, do you think that as we head into the future, that it's necessary to do these long 35, 30 minute, 40 minute, um, full blown breast MRIs when they're uncomfortable, you know, the patients move, you know, you don't get to call the money scan, you know, the dynamic, uh, contrast enhanced. Do you think it's necessary for us to, you know, continue doing these really long studies after again, you know, like an initial one? Right. Right. I think, you know, um, I think really the you know number one the whole my my whole mission and goal of that abbreviated breast MRI that you know uh, I didn't mention but we it, we it was published in 2020 in February in in JAMA um, was really to break the mindset of um, you know oh you can't do a, a a screening test that involves some type of injection or or whatnot and I think we've broken the mindset that you know we have to limit MR because of its cost and injection et cetera to to just you know the super high risk I think we've broke you know, we've broken that mindset and that this can be, you know, widely applied to, you know, not everybody, but we're talking about, you know, about half the screening uh, population fits, falls into that, you know, heterogeneous and, and uh, um, extremely dense category, about 50% of women. So um, that, that was number one, Uh, you know, people get all sorts of, when they get a yearly, you know, doctor's visit, they get their, their cholesterol test or they get a blood draw. So I don't, I, I've never felt like an IV for a screening test was, it was a big deal. But, um, as you say, you know, we've done all these sequences and really, I think we're reanalyzing, you know, are we really adding much more when we add all these uh, different sequences and we have, you know, 30, 40 minute scan times. And, and that, that leads to another aspect is, you, you know, have less acceptance of a test, the more uncomfortable and prolonged. And I think, you know, you have to have less women who would stay in a, a, an annual screening or every other two year screening program if, if they did, it's uncomfortable. And, and so I think really, uh, to your point is, you know, making it quick and comfortable, um, can really help maintain that that uh, high utilization rate, and uh, um, I, I think we do need more data. Um, I, I think over time we're going to see breast MR kind of evolve into you know um, a shorter exam, and you know with more data, I think it will replace. Right now, we're only really advocating because of the what data is there is the uh, abbreviated MR for average to intermediate risk with dense breast tissue. You know, right now, um, women who fit into that high category gene carriers, um, you know, they should still be getting that full MRI. But I think over time, we'll see the data reflect that, that they're probably not uh, having a, a much effect by having this shorter, more tailored program. And, and, and lastly, to, to, you know, that there's a concept that I'm working on another trial and, um, that it, it's looking into a different type of uh, a program that's more efficient. I call it smart ABMR, where, as you say, you know, maybe on the baseline, because that's has 
tends to have more false positives when you don't have a comparison to really may, make that a more robust scan with maybe adding some uh, you know t2 or diffusion and and uh, maybe uh, two or three post contrast to to have some kinetics and really have the highest specificity so that you get you know fewer false positives and and then moving forward i think you can just do a 3 4 minute pre post scan looking for change you know pre pre and post contrast um, and probably be using ultrafast for that because uh, the data has shown that patients with a high background pattern, uh, this was uh, published by uh, one of my other colleagues who's just a, a rising star in AI and breast MRI, Sarah Winkler, is uh, it's just an outstanding uh, researcher. And she's published that that ultrafast where you scan like the perfusion phase on a screening breast MRI in women who have high background, because once that background comes up, you can't, you know, you're going to have a hard time seeing cancers. But protocols with that ultra-fast perfusion phase scanning compared to ones that have, you know, just your regular gradients, uh, you know, GRE, you know, one one and a half minute scans that your that your sensitivity is is affected. And with this ultra-fast, she published almost like a threefold increase in sensitivity. So um, it's exciting times for for breast MRI, I think. Well, I can't help but think that uh, as we get, you know, with the advent of a of a macrocyclic high relaxivity agent, you add that into this mix. Right. Uh, going back to something you said earlier, we had you know technology improvements in in, in coils and and techniques, and now we're seeing this is as the techniques are evolving even more. It's a great time for a, a very high stability, high relaxivity macrocyclic agent that right. really fits right into this. Yeah, I mean, just... it's, it's the perfect marriage for, you know, this type of uh, a screening program where with repeated, you know, repeated uh, scans over, over many years and where you have, uh, you really want high sensitivity and high relaxivity. So I think you're, you're right. It's, it's another piece of the puzzle that's come along in addition to the, you know, you know, technology with coils and, and, and software. So for those of you out there, if you're, if you're not, you know, if your site's not uh, taking advantage or looking at the abbreviated breast protocol for these, uh, this patient population, you really ought to take a look at some of the literature that's out there. And there's quite a bit out there. Uh, this is, this is the way, uh, I think we're looking at the way breast MRI is going. And we've just, we've taken the first off ramp here. And uh, I, I really think this is going to be an exciting time over the next several years. Right. And, and, and there's been one last thing, you know, we didn't mention there was the DENCE trial that, you know, uh, it's, it's important to obviously show when you compare modalities, the, uh, the cancer that, you know, you have a high cancer detection rate, but, you know, even when we were, uh, having that reviewed and, and had uh, meetings with the NCI, um, you know, they were concerned about overdiagnosis and overtreatment, you know, that we're finding cancers that weren't all that important, but, you know, now we have even, you know, more data, um, Janice Sung, uh, also at Sloan Kettering, published um, in radiology the fact that vascular imaging and, and breast, we looked at our breast MRI patients, high-risk screening, who get both mammography and MRI. And she looked at what types of cancers the MRI was detecting compared to the, the mammograms. And the, the MRI is detection, detecting the much more biologically aggressive tumors. So not only are we finding more cancers, we're finding the important cancers. And the DENCE trial showed that 
you know, not, you know, obviously mortality endpoint trials and showing, you know, if you get an MRI versus a mammogram, you know, you're lowering your mortality rate. I mean, I think most people, it's clear that if you're finding cancers at a smaller size and earlier stage, um, you know, that's going to translate to reduction in mortality. But, you know, one of the accepted surrogates is, is interval cancer rate, which the dense trial, uh, it wasn't using the abbreviated but it show, a study, but it showed in extremely dense patients, they cut the interval cancer rate in half. And so, I mean, there's more ammunition that this is a, a powerful tool for screening and, and um, clearly um, should have an impact on reducing mortality. Well, I can't thank you enough, Chris, for taking the time with us uh, this evening for, for this podcast. And I'm sure that everyone out there really is going to appreciate it. Um, I want to thank you again, Chris, for taking the time with us sure. this evening. It's a pleasure to have you. Kristen, thank you as always. Oh, yeah, for, absolutely. For and Chris, um, this has um, just been very educational. It's something that I'm definitely very interested in. And I will tell you, just in doing a lot of breast talks, um, people are, are really um, inquisitive and very curious about the abbreviated protocols. And then, um, you know, just you guys were talking about the marriage um, and how complimentary, you know, having, you know, the gadapiclinol agent as well as the advancements that we've got now using this abbreviated protocol. It's it's kind of like how before we had diffusion and now the, the shortened stroke protocols that we have for patients that come in for detection. Um, and so it's just kind of, I kind of am seeing the same thing happen with the breast imaging as well, you know, just the whole full circle and we're getting there and we're just going to keep going on beyond. But Chris, you've been so um, fantastic and, and just every, everything that you've said is just really, um, it's, it's really been phenomenal and the work that you've done. Thank you for all the, the, the trials that you're doing and all the different research um, projects you're involved in. All right. Well, I, I appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, getting the word out and, uh, and the, your, your work with the podcast. I think it's really exciting. Uh, uh, you know, another channel for, for people to get information. I know we, I've, I think I was told, uh, the other week we, we were approaching uh, right, we were right around 19, uh, thousand subscribers. And that's, that's just fantastic. Um, we want to again thank uh, Brocco for their unrestricted educational grant for making this possible. And once again, I want to thank Dr. Chris Comstock. Uh, I want to thank Kristen Harrington, all of you out there for listening. Take care. We're out of here. You're just going to have to get over it. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Take care. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Thank you.